we are, uh, we are at a great place in the history of the church here on the east side of Austin, are we not? Yeah. Amen. We are at a phenomenal place. Uh, I sat this morning in our covenant um, group. By the way, y'all look great this morning. Uh, you can tell it's the four days of fall in Texas because we're all overly bundled up and it's warm in here. So it's already warm, but we're like, we've got eight layers on top of us. So welcome to Texas, y'all. Um, man, we are in a beautiful place in our church. And I don't know if you, you might be a first-time guest here and welcome. We're so glad you're here. But uh, we are at a place in our church where, I mean, we are adding rows. I don't know if you figured this out. We've added more rows, more chairs. We're in the process of thinking through how are we going to deal with the next step of what we're going to do and more to come on that. But that's a great thing. Uh, the potential of what God wants to do in here is powerful. Um, it really is. Um, I don't know if you think about that when you come here or if you're, you just come on a Sunday and, you know, it's church and it's a great spot for you to be on a Sunday, but you, you, you walk in here. I don't know if you really know anybody else here or how close you are, but there are communities of faith in here. There are smaller bodies of close friendships and people who are caring for each other's needs right now. There are people who are financially without that other people are caring for. There are people who are living in other people's houses in here because they need shelter. There are people in this place of all different backgrounds and spaces. And, I mean, it's, it's amazing to see and hear the stories. And this morning as we sat in on our covenant uh, member uh, kind of uh, ordination, if you will, kind of welcome, uh, welcome and blessing of everybody, uh, it just watched tears flow across people's face, including mine this morning. Um, as I just watched what I think is really the picture of the body of Christ. We are not perfect. So uh, welcome to an imperfect place. If you're looking for a perfect place, uh, we're not the right place to be. But we are a place that loves Jesus. And we love his word. And we want to continue to be that place. We want to continue being people who say yes and are available to what God wants to do through our lives. I, I really, Tori and I talk about this all the time, but I really believe, and I have no evidence to back this up, but I really believe that we're kind of on the cusp of, uh, there was a book years ago by Malcolm Gladwell called A Tipping Point, The Tipping Point. If you've read it, it's a phenomenal book. And I really just, like, I feel the sense of the Lord saying that word to us, that you're on a tipping point, that you're right at this place where, where I just don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't. I don't know what God is going to do, but I feel we're on the cusp of something great. We already have something great. Let me say that to you. We have, there are people here, like Casey and his wife Blair, and like Takasha, and some of these people I see intermittently throughout who have been building into this church for five years in the body here, and we are on the place of tipping. I think God is going to do something great, but here's the word today, and here's the question that I ask you. When you close your eyes, do you see the potential of what we as a body can be. When you close your eyes and you think about what this community of faith can be in Austin, Texas, do you think about, do you see the well being a leader in care of the marginalized, in care of women who have gone through abortions, if the leader in care of the refugee? Do you see us as a place that will be the leader in the care of orphans in the city? It's not a competition thing. I, I think we need a thousand churches and more in this city. And praise be to God, God is adding more bodies of faith. But it is a question of us. What are, what are, what are, what, who are us? Who are we? What are we going to be? And do you close your eyes and do you see and ask yourself the question, can I, 
do more, give more, be more. And before you get worried and you're like, oh gosh, I've been a part of a church before where a pastor has been like, give more, give more, give more. And you just like want to step back. Let me just tell you, we believe fully God will supply every need of this church. The Holy Spirit of God will and is working here and he will continue. So Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence here. Continue to move here. But my question this morning as we walk into, we're going to read some really tough scripture, I think it is at least. Do you believe that God desires to use this group of people far beyond gathering on Sunday? I do. And I think that he wants to challenge us to not be people who just gather here on a Sunday. But I actually think that we're going to find freedom. We're going to find more joy and life when we gather here to scatter outside of these walls to reach the least, the lonely, and the lost. Amen? That's what this is all about. And I, it's not hyperbolic this morning. I promise you that. This is sincere from our hearts. That's why we have said we want to talk about things in this church that are difficult. And, uh, but it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost all of us something. It's going to cost me personally something. It's going to cause me to sacrifice. It's going to call me into the uncomfortable. And it's going to cause me to even reflect more and more on the word of God and what God is saying to us through his word. And so today, we're actually going to enter into a little bit of that uncomfortable as we read the scripture. So, hi, welcome to church on Sunday. I hope you can give me a lot of grace today. We are walking in a world right now where there's a lot of conversation and yelling back and forth. Um, there's an author named Brennan Manning. If you know Brennan, Brennan had a deep struggle with alcoholism his entire life. But he's a deep lover of the word of God. And he's a deep lover of the grace of God. And he says this. It will be up on the screen here. He says that the greatest single cause of atheism in our world today are Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. In, uh, in Mother Teresa's funeral, President Bill Clinton spoke at it and they asked him what he thinks of her and he literally replied, how could anyone ever argue with a life lived so well? Put your theology aside for the second. How could anyone ever argue with a life lived so well? The point is today, what we're going to read today, is that our faith is proven true by when our actions align with what we speak. When we do what we say we believe, this is how people will see that we are the people of God. It will, they will see us by the way we love, and they will see us when we hear the word of God and walk forward in the word of God. We are a comfortable people in the United States, and that's just a reality. We have a lot more than most people have, and so we are a comfortable people in the North American church oftentimes. Uh, that's not a criticism one way or the other. I won't get into fully on that today, but what that is for us as the people of God of the well is that it's a, it's a call to question how comfortable are we. Are we able to walk into uncomfortable, sacrificial, costly situations? Are we willing to do that? Do you hear the word preached here over the past several weeks on the refugee and the orphan and race relations? And you go, well, that was great. Wonderful word, Toy. Thanks, man, for preaching. Todd, you did a wonderful job, but not for me. Or do you say... God is shining a light on my heart as a follower of him to say it's time for me to step forward. Soren Kierkegaard, who's a Danish philosopher and theologian, says this. He says that the human race in the course of time has taken the liberty of softening and softening Christianity until at last we have contrived to make it exactly the opposite of what is in the New Testament. Wow. We try to define Christianity on our own terms 
We like our preferences, our lifestyle, and sometimes church becomes sort of, a, of an ecclesiological buffet where we show up every Sunday and we love to take what we see in Scripture and we take some of it and we pull it out of the Word and we love some of it, but then we read some of it and we move right past it until, after all, if we took a pair of scissors, we would actually have holes in our gospel, that we would hold that up. And so God, I want to tell you this morning, is not to steal this from another pastor. He is not after our perfection this morning. Amen? Let me say that again. I don't think you heard me. God's not after our perfection this morning. Amen? He's after the progress of our hearts as believers. He wants to know, are we growing? Are we moving from toddler infancy into a teenage years of a believer? I don't know what that looks like. And then moving forward, I don't want to know what that looks like, to be honest. I had awkward teenage years. So are we moving into adulthood, into full-on becoming a shade in a tree that people, the birds of the air, can nest under, that people can find shade under, that we can lead them? We are about exalting Christ to this church, making disciples and sending people out. And we want you to be people that make disciples. And so I don't want to be a follower of Jesus that is known for taking God's word to heart, but entering sometime, uh, not taking it for heart, and not ever entering into the costly and the uncomfortable, when in all reality, our God is the God who gave the greatest cost, and a, the greatest gift at the greatest cost, life, not just physical. We're in the book of James today, so if you want to flip there, you can go ahead and flip there. If you ever read the book of James before, it's really jarring, to be honest with you. Uh, it's kind of like a wake-up call. It really is. It's like a, one, one, one commentator said it's kind of like an MRI. I had back problems for a long time. I still do a little bit. Uh, my SI joint, if you're a PT in here, is out of whack. And so uh, long story short, it throws everything out of whack, and uh, I feel the pain there. By the way, our ushers are coming down. If you need um, uh, the word of God, you just raise your hand real quick. Um, they'll, they'll give it to you, an actual hard copy here. But... Um, you know, uh, uh, the book of James is kind of like a mirror. It, it, you look at it in the, the mirror and you see really where you're at. That James says some things to us that are actually, if you don't feel kind of a little offended this morning, the question really is, are you actually reading the text correctly? If you don't have a little jarring and you're like, whoa, dude, that's a little bit pushing into an area that I don't want to talk about this morning, then there really is a question for you to say, am I really reading this right? Because the word of God here in the book of James is really going to show us what's below the surface. It's going to show us what's going on in our heart. The book of James is about our progress and not our perfection. But I realize today that there is a spectrum of believers in this room, and I realize that some of us are brand new in the faith, and so we're walking months into our faith. We're walking months, maybe a year into our faith, and so you're, you're growing uh, maybe at a rapid rate, even in some of us even. And some of you have been walking for years and years and years with the Lord. And so there's a spectrum. What, the last thing that Tori, I, and the elders want to do today is place a 100-pound weight on you as you read this word and say, hey, here you go. See you later. We're a church plant. We really don't have a lot of time to talk to you. So uh, good luck with all that, you know. No, we don't want to do that. By the way, we do have time to talk to you. If you want to email me, email me at Tori at uh, wellaustinchurch.com. Uh, but the book of James calls out, if you're a follower in Jesus, if you're a follower in Jesus, then that radically altered your legal status to God 
In the kingdom of God, there's a legal status. If you're a follower of Jesus, it altered your status, that you were adopted and brought into a family. And when it altered your reality to him, it should have altered the reality of our heart. The desires that we once had start to wane. I'm not saying you don't still struggle with those things. Hear me clearly. Not about perfection, about progress. But God begins to move us down this line and down this path of growing. And it should show us that it alters the way we live. It is a red flag if you read some of these things and you still feel like I look like the rest of the world. It's like that song, you know, like throw a flag on the plate. Man, somebody get the ref. Anybody? I see some people here. They're shaking their head. How dare you go there this morning? Look it up. I thank you for the hand in the back. I appreciate that. It means you should take a look at things. So hear me clear this morning. I want you to know as we're going to jump into this, know that God is about your progress. We've been in this series on the marginalized, and the question that we just have is, do you feel that sense? Do you feel that God calling you, stirring you, and asking you not to just come here on Sunday to take what is, uh, what is heard and preached and then just leave and forget about it? If not, you may very well be just like the rest of the church. And that is the most loving thing that I could say today to you as a pastor. You may very well be. James was the brother of Jesus, half-brother. He rose to prominence in the church uh, of Jerusalem. So after Jesus uh, ascended into heaven and the disciples moved out to to plant churches, James became one of the prominent leaders in the church. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He rose there and he was a pastor over Messianic Jews. So those Jews who converted to the faith. And the book begins really a lot more like a letter, but it's a letter that James wrote to a lot of followers of Jesus outside of Israel. So contrary to maybe what Paul had written about, where he had written to a specific church, James actually writes this letter uh, to all of the followers of Jesus. They wanted this letter to be dispersed. And so his goal was never to teach new theological teachings, but his goal was to kind of get in your business. He wanted to challenge you a little bit. The general influences on this book are one, Jesus' life. So if you're ever in a small group or you're in a church and they ask you a question, maybe just throw out Jesus and it's probably going to be a great answer. That was one of the greatest influences, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. You'll hear echoes of it if you read the whole book. Also, Proverbs chapters 1 through 9 were a big influence to this book. So the wisdom literature, which Jesus would have probably read through as a young man growing into be adult, which James would have read. And so a lot in this book is James challenging us to wholeheartedly live for Christ by way of wisdom, by way of thinking about the words that Jesus had said, to living the impossible ways that Jesus called us to. Let me rephrase that to you one more time. It should feel a little impossible, the things that God calls you to, because God is calling you to depend on him to do the impossible possible. Amen? You should feel the weight as you read the Sermon on the Mount, as you read some of James of, man, I'm not good at this. It should drive you to your knees, to asking God to move in your heart, to change your heart, to give you the ability to do what this calls you to. And so he reads in the very first chapter, he talks about the trials that find joy in trials, and already you're like, Lord, I need you in that. And then he says, I want you to be doers of the word, not just to hear it, but if you just hear it and forget about it, that you're not doing anything, that it's not going to be made true. And then he gets to this little couplet in James 1, 26 and 27. And really, that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. So here, read with me in James 1, 26 and 27. It says this, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that has, is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word religion here, I think there's a bad connotation a lot in our culture about religion. Am I right? I mean, what are the two things that we don't talk about? Religion, politics, unless we're in a nice circle like this, in a community like this. We don't talk about those things. Religion, uh, several years ago there was a video that went viral. There was a guy named Jefferson Bethke, and he put out this spoken word poem where he said it's religion versus Jesus. And in this spoken word poem, it was beautifully done. You should go home and actually look at it. It's phenomenal. In this word poem, he sort of challenged the notion that I don't follow religion. I follow Jesus. And what he's really saying, it kind of ignited a bit of a controversy. What he was really saying was he was saying that I don't follow systematic rules that earn my way towards God. I follow a God who did everything that needs to be done for me to be made right with him. Amen? And so a controversy kind of came up around this word religion. But Jesus here, really the misunderstanding here is what this word actually means. The word religion, one theologian says it can best be translated to this. It can best be translated to true faith in Jesus. True faith in Jesus, this line here on verse 127, religion that is pure and undefiled, that phrase can actually be best translated to true, your true faith in Jesus. And so James in this couplet gives us three results of what true faith in Jesus looks like. I will tell you this today. This is actually an imperative. It's a command in Scripture. It's not a suggestion, okay? We oftentimes in church think that Jesus is offering some suggestions to us, like, hey, let's maybe do this, and, you know, if you feel like it. Jesus actually gives us commands. Like, I don't know who you grew up with. I kind of grew up with a picture that Jesus was this nice, long-haired. It was nice and pretty. I mean, he carried a little lamb, and, you know, it was just, man, he's a nice guy. I would love to have some tea with him or something, you know. Jesus doesn't fully make suggestions. He actually makes demands of us, that he's the king of us. He's the king of our hearts. He's a king in himself, and he demands things of his followers, and so parents, if you tell your kids, uh, speak to, I don't have kids, so I have a dog, and uh, I know I get frustrated when my dog doesn't do something right, but I know that doesn't compare. Please don't email me. Uh, but when you as a parent ask your kids to do something, what does it feel like when they turn to you and say, uh, maybe after I go to the playground, uh, maybe after, later on after, um, you know, I get through fourth grade and have a little more knowledge and information, Maybe when I'm closer to dad later on, you know, then I'll, then I'll go clean my room. You're like, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, you're going to your room right now. You're going to clean it, and then you're going to sit in your room and stay there until I tell you to come out because you just backtalked me, right? This is how we often operate with God. And so James gives us three results of what a true faith, this barometer, this testing of our faith looks like for you to see and say, am I operating out of my faith? Do I fully believe these things? And he's giving us a scan Three things, three results. And the first one, we're not going to spend much time on, but it's speech. Speech that is controlled reflects true faith in Jesus. He says this in verse 26 of chapter 1. If anyone thinks he is religious, if anyone thinks he has faith in Jesus but doesn't control or bridle his tongue, but he deceives his heart, this person's faith in Jesus is worthless. 
What he is saying here is hard to hear. But he says if our tongue is flippant, if what we speak to others is not thought through, if we don't feel any sort of conviction when we speak down to somebody. Yesterday, I was playing ball with my man Luke. I don't know where he's at in here. But we were playing ball. And I'll be real with you. I don't wear a cape, so I can tell you this. The gospel allows me to feel free to tell you this. Yesterday, I got into it on the court with a dude when we were playing basketball. Then I come home, I'm finished sermon prepping, and God's like, if anyone doesn't bridle his tongue, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to call this guy up. I had to call the guy up. That's a sign that God is working and moving, that he's saying, do you hear my spirit inside of you to control your tongue? We live, do we not, in a world right now where we don't really, we really don't interact a lot like this. We don't really talk face-to-face very often. There's not a lot of that happening. There's this screen that's here. But we live in this world right now where there's some sort of notion that the first thought that comes to our head, I have to tell the whole world. So let me just go to Facebook the moment that I think something that happens on TV, and let me just tell them how I feel, and let's let the world know how I feel. If anyone, I think if James was probably going to be speaking this in our modern day, would probably talk about our texting and our tweeting, Amen. The, 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 the overflow of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So husbands, how you talk to your wife, how you speak to her is a sign of your understanding of your faith. It shows people what you really are believing in Jesus by the way that you speak. How you, I think this is something we don't talk about enough. How you interact and engage with servers, with people in the service industry, with your barista. Uh, go to an airport. Anybody uh, like me, like you go to an airport, you sit on a plane, and there's always that one person. You're like, that guy, you know, he's going to make a scene here on the plane. And I'm not talking United Airlines style. I am talking, though, there's somebody that's there, and they're always complaining about something, but they're, they're speaking down to people. It's a sign of our true faith in Jesus. And James says we need to watch our tongue. The tongue is a test of our faith. The other two things where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning is this. The true test of our faith is sacrificial, number two, sacrificial care for those who are in need and separation from the world. I put both of them up here because these two are coupled together. They're not meant to be separated. The tendency for us is, as one commentator put it, is for us, um, he used the metaphor of a horse. If you, anybody ride horses in here? I don't, so, uh, but anybody, we are in Texas, so maybe some people here ride horses. There is a way for you to get on a horse and stay on a horse, and oftentimes we lean to one side, or we lean to one side maybe to navigate to a certain direction. But he used this imagery of oftentimes we lean as people of God one way or the other. So we'll lean far conservatives on the right-hand side, and we will shout as loud as we can that we need greater morality and greater morals in our country. We need to be pure. We need to have a stronger purity. We need to fight for that. Or we lean on the other side, maybe here in Austin, Texas, a lot more, that we say we need to care for the com- and have compassion for those in need. And James says, which one is it? And he says, yes. It's both of them. We need to stay on the horse. We need to stay in the middle. We need to be able to understand that when we jump one way or the other, we are not fully showcasing who Jesus Christ is. That true faith in Jesus encompasses both public compassion and a purity, a personal purity, social justice, and personal godliness. That when those who are loud with their voices on social justice but don't think about their own lives, that it negates the reality of what's happening over here as you scream and cry for justice. 
And then those of us who maybe more so can yell, we need to get our lives in order. We need to be in line. We need to be more moral people. We need to have a stronger purity. But we don't care about those that are in need right outside of these walls. We are negating who Jesus is. Our faith is not proving to be true. And so James says this. He says in verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and keep oneself unstained from the world. The word visit there, just so you know, is a powerful, powerful word. It is very strong. It is, this text doesn't do it justice enough. That the word there means far more than just to go to. It actually means for us to seek out, to take responsibility for, and to bring in. The word is actually, I say it's so powerful because the word is actually used in Exodus in Luke 1 and Luke 7 to speak about our God and us. He says this in Exodus 4.31. It says, the Lord had visited the children of Israel. The Lord had visited. He went after them. He sought them out. He brought them in to take responsibility for. He took ownership over their needs and he brought them in and he had looked upon their afflictions. Luke 168 says this, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited, he has taken responsibility, he has taken ownership, he has brought us in, and he accomplished redemption for his people. So what is an orphan? What is an orphan? Now, I'll just tell you right now, in our country, we have, by definition of what we call orphans, 400,000 plus Somewhere, the number is debatable, around 400,000 orphans in the United States today. Those are children who are without one or two parents. Uh, I'm sorry, they're without two parents is the way we would look at it in the country. 100,000 today are waiting. They're ready to be adopted and brought into our families right now. They're looking for people to bring them in. The word in Scripture, though, kind of extends the definition a little bit. The word in scripture of orphan can actually best be translated the fatherless. You with me? You with me? What does that do to us when we hear that? It should expand our own minds, maybe even personally in here today, to wonder and question, do I fall under God's category of being someone who's been fatherless, who have been without a father? During the Old Testament times, uh, children referred to as as orphans were considered fatherless because the father was the, the, the main member of the family unit, the main clans member, okay? And he would, he would be the person that if he passed away, that the widow and the child would not be cared for. They no longer had somebody to care for them. So God litters, literally, litters is probably a bad word, but he scatters all through scripture the words orphan, care for the orphan, take care of the orphan, be for the fatherless, be there for them, take them in. Because if the father passed away in Old Testament times, if the father wasn't there, then they were completely without and nobody physically was there to care for them. And so God expands this definition of, of the orphan to the fatherless. And he mentions it in Scripture as some of the most helpless and needy people. I want you just to see this morning with me as we continue forward what God says in Scripture. We're going to throw up some of these things of what God will do for the fatherless, of what God will do for the orphans. God will be a father to the fatherless. Amen? He will be a father to the orphans. He will be a helper of the orphans. He'll hear the cry of the orphans. He will execute judgment. For the fatherless. He will punish those who oppress the fatherless. 
And then he tells us this about what we as followers of Christ should do. As believers, we're to visit orphans in affliction. Let orphans share in our blessings. We are to defend the fatherless. We are not to wrong the fatherless with our judgment of them. Man, that hit me this week. That hit me because I look at the problems in our country, and if you just systemically follow them, you will realize real quick a lot of our issues in our country are because of fatherless children. And I am the first to tell you, I have thrown stones in judgment at those people, not knowing fully maybe they're fatherless. Maybe no one's walked with them. Not to defraud the fatherless, not to afflict the orphans, not to oppress the orphans, not to do violence to the orphans. The one who takes in the orphans will be blessed by God. And so the orphan, the fatherless, is deeply cared for by God. And we prove our faith to be true and made right when we engage and take responsibility for them. I hate to keep throwing some numbers and some things at you, but I do, I just want you to, I kind of want you to feel the weight here for a second. I want you to see some of the statistics that we're going to throw up here a little bit further. Some of you may know this, but there's 150 million orphans worldwide. That's 150 million plus, so again, rough estimate number. Um, I spent some time in Zambia, Africa, where the country is actually 11 million in population and 1.5 million, over 10% of the country are orphan kids. They're double orphans. So they're 18 million double orphans. More than 25% of adults in the U.S. have considered adopting, but only 2% of the population have actually done so. Here's a praise be to God for the people of God right here. Christians are the highest group who have adopted in the United States. Praise God. Amen. Amen. That's good. We're more than two times as likely as the general population to, to adopt and bring into our families. 77, however, this is where it gets a little bit more sobering again. 77% of Christians, they believe and they feel that they have a responsibility to adopt, but only 5% have. We are actually the leaders in adoption in our country, and therefore we're actually the leaders of adoption in the world. Americans actually adopt over half of the world's adoptions. Half the world's adoptions come right here to the United States of America, but that means a very staggering and astounding number, and that is that when you think about it, only 2% of Americans are adopting, and so only 2% of Americans are carrying the global adoption effort weight. Crazy. Now, here's where I want us to go, and we'll finish our time with some of this. I want us to think a little bit this morning about... I want you to think this morning about where you and how you consider, who you consider an orphan. That hardly anybody really probably thinks about someone who grew up in a single mother home and doesn't have a father as an orphan. Someone in here probably wonders and questions, even the fathers that are in the home, some of them have emotionally checked out. And so would you consider those people to be orphans, to be fatherless Perhaps it's because of two assumptions that maybe in our culture right now, we assume that they're actually, statistically speaking, there are more women now than ever who are actually bringing in the money for the house. The single moms are bringing their breadwinners. They are bringing the money and the family comfort in. They're taking care of the kids. And so to some of us, we think, well, they're financially stable. So therefore, it doesn't matter. The father is not needed. Or maybe there's some blending of gender roles in our society right now. And so we question even how uh, we should even look. It's, it's skewed. The, the gender role is skewed. So we question 
are men even needed in the home? But I'm here to tell you that yes, 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 men are needed in the mental, spiritual, and emotional development of a person. Here's how I know this. Vodi Bakum wrote in his book, What He Must Be. He says this, that nearly 75% of the fatherless American children in our world are in poverty before the age of 11. Fatherlessness has statistically been proven to be the number one cause of poverty in America. That children living in homes where fathers are absent are more likely to drop out of school, be expelled from school, develop emotional and behavioral problems, commit suicide, and fall victim to abuse and neglect. And then this is crazy too. That fatherless males are far more likely to commit violent crimes and that 70% of our prison population are made up of fatherless males. And the children, think about that, all their children then thus are fatherless. It's shocking, and this is probably the thing that woke me up a little bit, that 43% of children in the United States live without a father right now. 43%. So can we all agree this morning as a family of God that the orphan in America and in the world are those without a father? Can we agree on that this morning? And if that's the case, I'm not making light of the reality that there are 400,000, but I am saying to you today that there is a reality that people in here are victims of that. They, I don't want to use the word victim because we are victors in Christ, amen? We are victors in Christ. And I want to tell you this morning, if that's you, if you're someone who hasn't, like me actually, who had a father who checked out at a point in his life, I want to tell you that God is your defender. He is your strength. He is your portion. He is watching over you. He is caring for you right now. He is meeting every single need that you think that nobody sees. He sees it. He has not forgotten you. His care for you is deep and it runs wild. He looks after you. And this church, where we are headed as a church of God, is we will be a church that is for the orphan, for the fatherless. That's why in our church we push hard for you to make disciples. It's why we push hard for you men, older men in this church, to bring younger men under your wings. We need it so bad. Some of you in here right now are older men, and you look around, and I'm not, I'm not dull to this. Tori and Paul and I are not dull to this, that there are some older men in this church, and you go, wow, there are some really young people here. Where are the people I'm going to relate to? Can I get an amen from somebody? Amen. Thank you so much. Can I tell you, you are so needed here? That the body of Christ needs you to care as spiritual mothers and fathers and put them under your wings, to walk with them, to raise them up to be elders in this church and to be elders in all the churches that we're going to plant. And we're going to plant a lot of churches here. We need that. We need you. We need those of you who are young to step up and say, I need somebody to walk with me. I don't know where I'm going. We need that. And God tells us, Three things. It's not an option for us. We can't neglect them. And God is a, is a father to the fatherless. And how is he going to do it? He's going to do it through you. So you hear me going this morning. I realize there's a weight here. But what is the motivation for this? What is the motivation for this? The reality is the motivation is what Ephesians 2 says. 
that you were following the, cor the course of this world and you were by nature children of wrath. That like the rest of mankind, you were a child of wrath. That means, let me tell you this, if you don't know the gospel of God this morning, I want to tell you the hard news and then I want to tell you the great news. The hard news is simply this. It's that God's wrath was aimed at you. You were an enemy of God. You were an outsider of God. And it says this, but God, but God, the two greatest words in all of Scripture, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive in Christ. Amen. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we celebrate. That's why we sing when Sarah's praising God and singing and we lose our mind. It even says that in Scripture that some of us are going to lose our mind. And it says, but for your sake, I'll actually be a little more tame, Paul says. He may, I kind of get that feeling like if you bring a friend to church and he's like, okay, but I, I want to lose my mind because God is amazing and, and he brought me from dead to life. But I don't want to lose my mind because over here is my friend that is for the first time to church today. Some of y'all are like, I know, dude, you need to chill out a little bit right now. But this is why we lose our mind. This is why we go crazy because Romans 8.16 says this, that the Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God. We are heirs to God with him. We're heirs with him. And it says that in love, in Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption. He predestined us. He adopted us. He, he before time created thought of you, Christian, believer, follower of God. He saw your face and he said, that's mine. You're mine. I will bring you into my family and I will make you mine. We are all born orphans into this world. You're all born inept, without, but we are fatherless no more. Amen. We are fatherless no more. And so I will close out with these things. I want to speak to a couple groups of people real quick. Some of us in here today need to remember our adoption. You need to realize that it is really easy as a follower of Christ to come in here, sit in the same seat, meet the same people, <laughs> do the same thing day in and every Sunday, Sunday in, Sunday out, and to go on. And you hear the words, you hear the phraseology, you hear the lingo that is culturally relevant to us and you've forgotten that you have been adopted and God wants to remind you today that he saw you when you were without and he brought you in like David some of us need to be praying today that he would restore to me the joy of my salvation some of us in here today another group of us need to stop acting like we're an orphan amen some of us in here need to stop living our life where we're taking care of ourselves, we're independent, where we're too strong for ourselves, we try to be too strong, where we are trying to protect ourselves from being taken advantage of, where we try to depend on no one, where we're weak and we're afraid to admit it. Orphans crave to be taken in, but they doubt that they'll ever be loved. Some of you need to hear this morning, you are loved, brother and sister in Christ, you're loved. You're in a family. Welcome to the family of God today. Some of us, maybe today God is drawing you close. You've heard the gospel in a couple of different ways and manners. And you need to realize that the invitation is not about what you do, that you're perfect in this, but that God wants to give you your position 
in his eyes and bring you from the outside into his family today. And he's offering that to you. Can I just tell you, if that's you today and you're wondering if God is stirring your heart, maybe it's not a mistake that you're sitting here today to hear that God longs for you to be in his family. And he offers you the grace of God as a free gift. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to look perfect. You don't have to wear the right thing in this church. You don't have to know all the answers. You just have to say, I believe Jesus. I believe that you are my salvation, that you gave your life for me. On that cross that you paid the debt that separated us. And I want Jesus' perfect life for mine. He'll exchange it today. He will. He'll do it right now. And there will be people at the end of this who will be on the side of here. They, they will pray with you. I just encourage you to go talk to them and tell them, I want that. I want to be in the family of God today. And then the last group of us, I'll just say it as nice as I can. We need to get in the game. We need to get some skin in the game. Austin, Texas, Travis County right now has a need for adopted children to be adopted. University of Texas at Austin right now has a need for people to make disciples. <laughs> There's a guy in here, Jacob Brown, and his wife. I don't know where they're at. They are campus, uh, I'm sorry, they're not campus, they're student mobilization on campus at the University of Texas. I'm sure they would tell you clearly. You can email me and I'll connect you. They would tell you where, where they need needs as they're caring for stu children and college students who are without fathers right now. I've done college ministry for 10 years before this job, and I will tell you the greatest problem I dealt with when people asked me was that there were not enough men who would take other men under them. And they would, there were so many problems and errors and hurts from people who had father pain. And I'll end by telling you this, that it should feel costly to you. It should feel uncomfortable to you. You should feel the weight that it's not just about you. Notice he doesn't say, hey, dump your bank account for the orphans and the widows. He says, go to them. Take them in. So you should feel discomfort. You should feel the cost. You should feel reduced time for recreation. You should feel increased exposure to awkward situations. Just ask Jacob what it's like to walk around on a college campus as an older male. It's a little awkward. I'd do it too, all right? It's even more awkward to do it in high school, okay? I'll just tell you that right now. You should feel helpless a little bit. You should feel like, man, Nick, this is a really heavy word, and I don't know what to do. But you should go to God. You should ask him to guide you. You should know that the Spirit of God is in you, and he will guide you. And maybe today the first goal is just that just to pray, like me this week, to repent of the areas of my unknowing what God wants to do with my life, to care for the orphan and the fatherless. Maybe he wants you to get connected with an organization here in town. Maybe he wants you to serve in the upstream issue of the fathers who are in prison right now. Maybe prison ministry is your way to care for orphans. Or maybe he simply just wants you to become an orphanage yourself and make disciples. I love asking Tori this this week. I love asking Tori this week. I said, man, what else would you say? And he just said this to me. He said, uh, Bob Christensen, who's a guy, a part of this church, he says that he's, he's become an orphanage for me. He's cared for me. He's been a spiritual father. And he said he's done that for, I don't know, maybe hundreds, thousands. And I thought, man, what a, what a beautiful picture of Jesus. What a beautiful picture of God. It is awkward. It is costly. I will tell you personally, as a pastor of this church, that my own life was very, very much affected 
by a father who decided to walk out at one time. And by the grace of God, he is restoring that relationship. And he's a godly, he's a great man. I love him. And I'm, we're engaging and it's beautiful. But there were years, there were gaps in my life that played out symptomatically in a lot of other ways and issues. And it wasn't until Brett Rogers from the University of Texas Austin Young Life sat down with me. And he said, you can come into my house. You come into my home. You take, I will take you in. And you will be part of my family. And he taught me this word. And he taught me what it meant to be a man of God. And he walked with me and he still walks with me to this day. I'm a pastor this day because of him. And uh, you don't know what God wants to do. And so the word today is that this is where our church is headed. Amen, Tori? Amen, Paul? It's where we're headed. We will exalt Jesus. We will make disciples. We will be spiritual fathers and mothers. And maybe today, God's just saying, like, he, like Jesus, God's just saying to you, like, get some skin in the game. Get some skin in the game. I will tell you that Jesus, at the Garden of Gethsemane, he said this, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done, Father. And he walked to the cross so that he could adopt you into his family. He leaves the 99 for the one. Church, this is who we want to be. I pray that God will stir your heart today to think about how you can engage in this, to know that it is a command of God and that God is calling us to take a mirror on our own lives today to see where we're at. Father, you're good, you're merciful. If we continued reading the rest of your word in James 2, you would say this, that you long for us to operate by the law of liberty because mercy triumphs over judgment. So may mercy, the mercy that's been put on our lives and our hearts, be the fuel and the fire to catalyze us forward today. May we have the grace of God be the drivenness to give our efforts and expend ourselves on behalf of the needy, the poor. As we close this series, those women who have feel the weight and the guilt from making the choice of an abortion, that they are still loved and that mercy still triumphs over judgment over their life today. Lord, I feel that you are telling me to tell that to somebody in here today that mercy triumphs over judgment in their life. And that you would call us to engage in race relations and conversations and friendships and brotherhood with those even in this church who don't look, act, smell, see, or, or just are just like us, God. Open our eyes, open our hearts today, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, uh, as we close, I do want to point out one family here today. Um, this isn't to make much of them, and so I hope you hear my heart in this, please. They know this, and uh, they know I'm gonna, I wanted to do this. I just felt God tell me, give me a little nudge to do this. But um, Lynn's family, where are you at? Can you raise your hands high for us? Sitting right down here. My brother and sister in Christ just became a covenant member today, have adopted three children, and they've told me, how we would love to have any conversation with anyone who God is placing that on their heart today. Um, they would love to tell you what it's like to walk through. They would love to tell you the resources that they, the, the things they've learned probably on the difficult journey that it is because it is costly. And uh, they'd love to talk to you about that. Also, we would love to connect you to any organization in this town. We have our partner organization back here that we'd love for you to check out. So 
Uh, we will have a communion on each side of these tables as Sarah leads us in two final songs. Has she not done an amazing job, by the way, today? All, all of our worship leaders in here, amazing. Sarah has an amazing gift, and uh, she leads in a band here in town. I'm going to brag on you for five seconds. Called Indian and the Jones, and she has a huge heart for the church, the local church. Her husband, uh, her and her husband do both, and they lead actually a, a few churches here in town. But we'll have communion on each side today, and uh, between the next two songs, we'd love for you to take part in the Lord's Supper, which is an invitation of a reminder that God adopted you. There's nothing magical about this uh, juice. There's nothing magical about the bread. It is simply a reminder that this is the body of Christ that was broken for you. This is the blood of Christ that was shed for your sins to bring you into a family of God. Uh, on the, each wall are those of us on our prayer team that will pray for you as well. We love you guys. And let's, uh, let's, let's stand and uh, let's celebrate the Lord.